Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. We have another consumer-focused episode today with Julia Rouge from Sandolphin Capital. Julia is currently an associate at Sandolphin, where she's responsible for all aspects of the fund, including screening, due diligence, portfolio company support, as well as strategy. She has a deep expertise in launching and accelerating both early-stage and growth startups, including MGemi, Rockets of Awesome, Universal Standard, and more. In the past, Julia has also worked with two venture builders, Launch and Breakaway Ventures, where she focused on launching and operating technology-enabled consumer startups. Julia focuses heavily on CPG, B2C e-commerce, food and beverage, and retail. Before joining Sandolphin, she worked as an MBA associate intern at Corazon Capital. She's also a two-time Northwestern Wildcat, completing both her undergrad and MBA at Northwestern. I really enjoyed this conversation so much, and I hope you do as well. Julia, thank you so much for joining me on. Uh, thank, can restart that again. <laughs> Julia, thank you so much for joining us on Chicago Capital. We're really excited to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So, doing a quick review of your uh, your CV, your LinkedIn, I see that you mm-hmm. did your undergrad at Evan at uh, Northwestern, and you got your MBA from Northwestern. Mm-hmm. So, you must just be a huge yeah. fan of Evanston at this point. Go Cats! I am. Yes, I am double dipped at to, in Northwestern, and um, yeah, just loved it. it. Which another shocking thing is that actually was the only undergrad I applied to and the only business school I applied to. <laughs> so I really. I applied early both times and um, yeah, just was fit all my criteria for school. (laughs) Did you grow up? Did you grow up in the Chicagoland area? Did you grow up around Northwestern? I grew up in the Western suburbs of Chicago. I actually went to boarding school. So I think that in Massachusetts, and I actually think that was my impetus to want to come back to Chicago (laughs) to go back to school. So I think that's really kind of what drove me home was just seeing everything else and thinking, you know what? Chicago's so great. I want to go back there. And you would have been an undergrad while a bar that I've heard of was quite popular called The Keg. I oh, assume, yes. you, assume you frequented yeah. The Keg? I frequented The Keg in undergrad, and then it was actually gone by the time I was in business school. And it was like a very fancy coffee shop that I then went to, which was always just crazy to be there and be like, this used to be The Keg. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's like a renowned, it's an institution, basically, or it used to be an institution on the North Shore of Chicago. I uh, it, it was before my time, but everything I've heard said that place was just magical. And it's a tragedy that it's still not open to this day. Yeah. So I'd love it if we could, uh, you know, touch on after graduating from Northwestern, mm-hmm. kind of your path to business school, your path to venture capital. Yeah, absolutely. So while I was an undergrad, I didn't even really know what venture capital was. I think a lot of undergrads these days have a better sense, which is so great. And there's great, the garage is now at Northwestern, which just teaches them a ton about entrepreneurship and launching businesses and VC. So I think that's such a great resource now for undergrads. But at the time, I didn't know. I knew I was always passionate about entrepreneurship. I was particularly interested in food at the time. So I got an internship at the Food Network in their new business team, and then eventually joined them full time after um, school. So that was really, I thought I was going to stay in the food world, but instead I just found that that was like a real learning time where I learned all about launching new businesses. So it was kind of on their corporate innovation team. It was called the new business development 
team, we launched all new businesses, new products. And then I specifically was working on experiential businesses. So launching the first Food Network kitchen, restaurant, and we also did food and beverage like stands at Major League Baseball and NFL stadiums. So yeah, that was like my first real touch into entrepreneurship. It was very different in that like we had the full funding and backing of a major brand and big corporation. So that was different in the sense we weren't like working off of a PL. It was like somewhat of a branding exercise for the food network. So that was, you know, good and bad. But yeah, I was able to just learn a ton, you know, everything from training staff to developing and sourcing packaging, helping with the chef to build a menu, photo shoots. I mean, it was such a fun job working with the Food Network and just learned a ton. But I knew I really wanted to get a little bit more of a true startup experience. So I joined actually an incubator up in Boston called Launch. And it was at the time really focused on all direct to consumer brands. It was kind of in like the probably like when that was like a really big growing trend. And then I joined one of the startups that we launched out of there called Jemmy. And I always kind of had a, a little bit more of a marketing role at, at these companies at the time, just find my, myself into those roles, but always so early that you're really doing everything from doing kind of marketing and strategy, launching the first pop-ups with Jemmy to like customer experience and like helping people get shoes on their feet. So at a startup kind of doing it all, since there's not a lot of people there, but eventually roundabout started to see a little bit of the investment side working with these startups and knew that I thought it would be nice to one day get out of the weeds a little bit, have like a little bit more uh, time to think about just like higher level strategy. I worked briefly at an agency in DC at the time my husband was clerking for a judge in DC. So this was like a little bit of a separate stint, but I saw the side of working with a lot of different companies and founders and industries. And I really liked that. I think working at an agency has a lot of also very difficult things because you have just like tons of clients and working with a lot of different personalities. And so I definitely like respect everything agencies do. And then somehow like venture capital kind of had everything kind of like the best of every piece of it. It's you get to work with amazing founders, work with them on high level strategy, kind of invest in their dreams, connect across like a really wide network of people where you can just like help them to, we try to think of ourselves as like connectors. So if they're looking for like a great marketing agency or PR agency, or they need someone who's a really strong operator in a specific industry, you can really help to make some of those um, connections happen. And I really love being an investor and venture capital really love early stage because you get to kind of make more of an impact and really work closely with founders. And somehow it's just it's the best job that's been able to marry everything I've learned over over the years all into all into one one role. That's amazing. Yeah, that's a background. I mean, doing this podcast, I've you know interviewed twenty guests and heard twenty different backgrounds to venture capital. <laughs> so it's always one of my favorite questions because the journey is always so different. I mean, working at an ad agency, Jeff Canalupo at Listen Ventures, he worked at Leo Burnett for ten years. It's just so cool to see like these kaleidoscope of experiences and how they can transition over to VC. And on that note, for you, I'm curious, you spent a lot of your early career, you know, marketing brands, launching brands, and really being in that inception stage. How did you find the transition over to venture capital where you're trying to sort of assess the business and the long-term viability of these brands? What was that transition like for you? 
Yeah. So definitely something that was missing from my background and just expertise was just like the hard finance skills, really. And so that's why I went to business school and I did the one-year program at Kellogg, majored in finance. I just tried to do everything finance so I could do modeling and just understand all uh, the economics there. So that was definitely like a big piece that was missing. I think it, it can be helpful when people like come from a banking background or, or come from a finance background in that sense. But what I think I do have is one, working with founders and not being a founder myself, but working, being an early employee at a startup. I just have a real sense of what it takes and the sort of personalities that it takes and the dynamics and what they're experiencing. And I think it can help me be a better partner for them, having it gone through it myself and also to evaluate them as, as a founder and just the skills that it's going to require to succeed. Also like coming from like the brand and marketing side, I understand a little bit more of just what it takes to sell a product and, you know, speaking specifically from consumer, cause that's my background, just how you need to create really like an emotional brand, how important it is to have consumers really believe in your mission, trust in the quality of your products, want to interact with you. And just really the importance of like word of mouth and virality and just learning what it takes to build a successful brand. I think my background has really helped that and helped me to be able to analyze it from an investment perspective and then offer support really where I can partner with, with the founders. I think you mentioned brands building a mission and a you know statement of purpose, how important the quality of the product is. I'm curious if those sort of aspects of building consumer brands, has that is a greater importance been placed on those aspects in recent years and since you started kind of working on the consumer side? I, you know, I wasn't too cognizant of what was going on in the early 2000s and the late 90s, mm -hmm. but I do feel like, and maybe you could correct me, but there has been a greater emphasis on the mission, the purpose, and all those things you just mentioned over the years. Yeah, I think it, definitely. I think that's like changing consumer tastes and desires in a way. People want there to be and a mission, I think, especially like this next generation really like believes in that. I So I think that's definitely one piece. I think the other piece is just like paid acquisition is getting more and more expensive. So I think like brands are constantly trying to think, how can I not rely so much on paid? How can I get consumers to be my evangelists? And one way is to really have that emotion and just like a mission, something that people really believe in that they're willing to share. So I think that's like a big force driving it. And at Sandolphin, that's a big focus for you, I know, is the consumer side, consumer investing. But I am curious, what originally drew you to the fund? You know, coming out of B school, you did the one-year program. Was it always sort of, did you always know you were going to end up at Sandolphin or, or what really drew you to the fund? Yeah. When I was in business school, I was working with Corazone Capital, which was just like such a, I feel like big break. It's such a hard, it's, there's so few roles. I think anyone in business school is just like trying, if they're interested in this, trying to get to find a role and timing is so up in the air and what they're looking for. They might have consumer. They don't need any more consumer. They might need someone with a specific background. It's just such, it's so hard to get in. Although on a side note, I told that to my sister as she was getting in and then she just got a, <laughs> she's a partner at Sandbox now, like very quickly. <laughs> so I guess for some people it's easier, but 
So yeah, Corazon Capital was just amazing. I learned so much, such a great team, really like a, a great experience for me. I then met Jonathan as I was just, you know, looking to find a full-time role. I know I knew at the time Corazon was not going to be hiring full-time. Usually people start hiring full-time when they're raising another fund or someone happens to be leaving. So I knew that they were not going to be raising. So I knew I needed to, to do a lot of interviewing. I eventually found Jonathan and I knew that he was going to be raising a second fund. I think what drew me to Sandolphin, besides just Jonathan's a great, when I met him, I've met him a bunch of times as I was doing the interview process and he's just so great and personable, super connected, super passionate about founders. He's just like such a such a great connector in the Midwest. But I really liked that it was early and kind of almost a startup itself and that I'd have the ability to influence processes and how we're going to source and screen deals. How do we score them? How can we make this like a little bit more science driven rather than just an art? It'll always be a little bit of an art, but just to have a little bit more of an impact since a lot of that wasn't set in stone because it was just Jonathan doing the investing. And then yeah. And then having the ability to lead consumer, Jonathan's background's a lot more on B2B. You'll, you'd see fund one is primarily B2B and software and just some consumer deals. Probably our second fund will be like about 25% consumer, but just having the ability to lead that was a great opportunity too. Well, first off, during the interview process, did you have to Google the meaning of the name Sandolphin? Because I know I did coming into the episode. <laughs> Yes. And yeah, so I didn't know. I think like we have a little story maybe about it on our site. Um, you do. You do. Yeah. It's the. It's a great name. Yeah, it's a great name. We've actually like in the past, we've thought, should we change it? Nobody knows how to say it. But now we've done enough that we're a little bit more well known. It would kind of be confusing to change it. So we'll probably be keeping it. <laughs> And it's okay if and you get I'm, if you get it wrong. <laughs> yeah, I know. We had to I just had to double check that before the episode, but I think now it's going to stick in my mind forever. So there you go. That's branding <laughs> right there. Exactly. I'm curious about that interview process and and getting to Sandolphin. Did it, the fund did Jonathan know he wanted to steer more into the consumer landscape or was it something that you really had to pitch him on when you were going through that interviewing mm -hmm. process or once you, you know, landed the full-time role? Yeah. He I think as he was looking to bring on another team member, he definitely wanted someone with a different background than his. Consumer was a piece that, you know, he thought was very important in the Midwest, particularly like having food above. That's Chicago's such um, a massive center of that. And just not, that was missing a little bit from fun one. So I think that was always in the back of his mind, but also just generally wanting someone with more diverse network of even even like your venture capital like fun network and regional network a lot of mine was out on the east coast and because that can help with follow-on investments and just sourcing deals and just having like diversity of experience and also diversity of network i think is kind of critical so that at least for me like going through the interview process was just was such a big piece. When you have such a small team, you have to have just like diversity of experience or else it's, you're not adding that much value for them. So yeah, I don't know if it was so necessarily consumer, but having a, some piece of diversity. So I think, and that touches on, I think we have a feel for kind of the, you know, the sector focus or the sector focuses of Sandolphin, but I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more. And I think listeners would love to learn a little bit more about the mandate from a stage perspective 
from a geography perspective. What do you all at Sand Dolphin like to focus on from, from that angle? Yeah, our primary thesis or focus is investing in the Midwest and underserved regional markets. So I'd say about 80% of our fund is focused on the Midwest. We are opportunistic elsewhere, of course, but we really believe in this region and think that it's very underserved with great startups and opportunities. So that's really our primary focus. We invest pre-seed through Series A. Our real like core is investing in seed and really just looking for passionate founders, speaking on consumer, just looking for people tapping into growing emerging categories, sticky, passionate consumer bases that want to evangelize your product. Yeah. But just to reiterate, we're probably only like 20%, 25% consumer. So while my background's consumer and I really lead it up, we focus a lot on B2B and software and Jonathan's expertise is really there. <laughs> so not to confuse listeners too much. <laughs> We hope to have him on the show so he can definitely dive deeper into the B2B, you know, enterprise software side. Absolutely. That's great. But I think it's so cool that you guys do have sort of, I think a lot of times, or sometimes you'll see funds that are just strictly purely B2B software investors or enterprise tech investors, especially in the Midwest. I, I think it's fair to say there's a little bit more of a focus on that hmm. here in the Midwest, but you know, I think it's really cool how you guys do have sort of those dual mandates of, you know, looking at consumer focused investments, as mm -hmm. well as more enterprise based investments. I'm curious, you mentioned, you know, looking for strong founders. For you, especially in the consumer side, what do you like to look for in a founder? Are you looking for somebody who's got deep experience at maybe, you know, a CPG company, who's got domain expertise in some way, maybe a second a serial founder? What to you signifies a strong founder's background? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of different factors and we weigh them all. So domain exp expertise is obviously important, but we have invested in you know very young founders who don't have a ton of domain expertise. Where they don't have domain expertise, they have great advisors and a strong network that's able to support them. So that's what we would look for if, if maybe one particular area was really lacking. Who do they have that can support them where they're missing? But other things we really think about beyond the industry expertise is just like generally, do they understand like the customer? Are they able to story, like what's their storytelling ability? So that's really important for pitching to investors. They're going to need to be able to raise follow on capital. So we need to have someone who we know can do that, but they also need to be able to sell to the customer um, and create their brand. Are they able to hire really like ahead of the curve? Who have they hired at such an early stage and been able to bring on board when they don't have a lot of money? So we want someone who's like a visionary, but is able to also get into the details and, and be focused and organized. I think having someone who is coachable to some extent, you want them to be, to to be like strong and confident in, in what they want and what they know, but to be able to take advice, they definitely need grit. It's very hard to be a founder of an early stage company. So definitely a lot of grit and just the ability to execute. So I think you can have big visions, you know, and not be able to execute on them. Yeah. I, you know, I've always thought, oh, I'd be so great to be an entrepreneur, but I just, you know, I have never built a business by myself. I've worked at a lot of startups. So I think like it takes a very unique person and it's, I really admire people who are able to do it. It's, it takes an amazing skill set.
Absolutely. I imagine this is true for a lot of venture capitalists, why you get into the job in the first place. But for me, it's been my favorite part of the role is getting to meet entrepreneurs on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you're not going to invest in all of them. And it's there's a lot of saying, you know, having to sort of uh, pass on deals. But I think it's still probably the best part of the job. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's so great. Really, like you can have so many different personalities that are able to be successful at it. And I think it's so fun to meet them. There's always kind of like a little special spark though, I feel like in an entrepreneur that is kind of consistent across across everyone who's a, a willing to take that risk, who can really get it done. So yeah, it's great. And I think, you know, trying to analyze a founder or an entrepreneur is, is I guess maybe part of the art of venture capital, but you also mentioned the science behind it. So I'm curious for you, what are some of the green flags that you like to see in a seed stage investment? You know, it could be level of traction or something in their financials that that really mm-hmm. excites you and indicates that, okay, we have a pretty interesting opportunity here. Yeah. So I know some funds have like some like hard and fast rules around like revenue and things like that. We don't. There's definitely some like early indicators of success that we like to see. So some things that like as a green flag that we'd be looking at would be, and just to say, like, we know that these are not always the case and some are stronger than others, but things we do look at are um, like a strong repeat purchase rate could be strong retention in a, in a software, any like referral and network effects that we're starting to see just like early indicators of, we like to see kind of like on top of metrics like that, how the founders are being capital efficient, how thoughtful are they in hitting milestones um, and projecting milestones that just can set them up for success? How are they able to execute on everything and just continue to see confidence? So sometimes we'll talk to founders, seed founders over the course of several months as like maybe they're gearing up for a raise, they haven't started a raise, or maybe the raise is just taking a little bit longer. You know, our process can go from like, we make an investment in a week, or it could be like five months. So sometimes you have the ability to kind of see them execute over time which just like builds up more confidence in some of those early indicators. But yeah, we're really just looking at like early indicators of growth and success and just like important pieces that we think will build a successful company rather than hitting any specific milestone. Making an investment from first meeting to check in a week. Mm-hmm. I have to imagine that's that's kind of uh, an exciting <laughs> week, but pretty stressful. What What is that like for, for you on the kind of, <laughs> you know, on the front edge of due diligence, which is where I imagine yeah. you've been for a few years. What What's that like? Yeah. So, I mean, like first check in the bank, probably not in a week, but from first meeting to indicating like a hard commitment, I'd say. That could happen in a week. So then the then the docs and everything can take a little bit of time. But what's that like? I'd say typically that will happen when there might be other investors on board who are already further along in diligence. And maybe we've connected with them and we can see some of the diligence. Maybe that goes a little bit faster. We might just have just such strong conviction over the founders. They have just a ton of domain expertise, serial founders we've seen before. They're launching something new in a similar category. That's something we're looking at right now that moved really quickly. So just super strong conviction on founders. Great initial traction, just like great other investors in the network and advisors. And we just really believe in the huge market potential. So just like hitting on everything. And then it's a matter of, okay, we have to make a hard commitment 
or else we could miss the round. So you want to be careful on that because a lot of times, one, you don't want to be biased that something's moving fast means it's going to be successful. But if it's hitting on everything and moving quickly, then you have to move a little bit more quickly. And then also you don't want to be biased like just because another investor's in the deal doesn't also mean it's going to be a great deal. And you don't know why they might be interested in the deal. So you have to just like be careful of bias as you're making investments, particularly fast moving investments. But yeah, I think when you have really strong conviction over something like, and you're very careful to kind of evaluate your biases, why that's a great opportunity. And you don't want to, you want to miss out on great deals by taking too long. I'm also like, we're really trying at least to speed up our process to get back to founders for their benefit, even when it's like, a pass so that they can move on. And I think that can be really probably frustrating from the founder's perspective, which is waiting around for responses from investors. Yeah, I think speed of response and and just speed of due diligence is definitely a trend that many investors have talked about on the show. And another trend is sort of the gradual rise in valuations that COVID seemed to, mm. at least, you know, probably at the Series A, Series B level, seem to have very little effect at, uh, at dimming. I, mm-hmm. I'm curious about you at Sandolphin. Do you have sort of valuation caps at the seed level that you sort of say, okay, this is this is beyond what we want to sort of invest into, and our ownership position is just not going to be advantageous mm-hmm. enough to make this bet? Um, curious, just how you guys are thinking about the current state of valuations at the early stage, and, and what's mm-hmm. what's sort of too high of a valuation for you? Yeah, so we definitely have seen deals even recently that I could think of that the valuation cap was too high, and it just makes the deal less exciting, or you need to cross way bigger barriers in order for it to make sense. So we don't have any specific caps that we would be looking at, um, but we will pass where we just don't think there's enough opportunity to grow meaningfully past the post money by the next round. That's like such a critical thing to think about. So, So we look at kind of the risk versus return potential. And then Jonathan sometimes mentions like asymmetry on a deal by deal basis. And what he means by asymmetry is basically the downside is always 100%. It could just go to zero. So we look for a skew of like probable outcomes where we can see a believable path to like a 10x return or better at seed. And like that could be even a 20x return on pre-seed. So there's enough of a skew for us to end up with like a three to five X fund, knowing like some do better or some do worse. I think that's like what a lot of funds, how they think about things. So if we're looking at a valuation cap, we have to, in our investment, we have to imagine that it, that we'll get a 10 X return on it. And in the long run, and that'll mean meaningfully grow by the next round so they can get fall on capital. So I think sometimes the super high valuations at seed just kind of hurt the founders a little bit and make the next round more difficult. So we definitely take it into consideration. And you mentioned grow meaningfully, you know, in the next round. I'm curious, do you always make your seed investments leaving open the possibility or with the hope that you will be able to follow on in the Series A or in sort of the next round of capital? How do you guys think about doubling down on your winners and and what that looks like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we definitely do consider and have save money to do our pro rata allocation in a Series A. So definitely wanting to do follow-ons. We like to see at least 5% ownership or up to 10% ownership on our initial check. Definitely, like we have flexibility. I think everyone kind of has parameters and then is flexible from there. So then that allows us to do sort of a pro rata on the next round. And then we also always think about like, 
other investors that are on board and how involved we're going to be versus them. And for next round, we want them to get other great investors on board. And like, we're never, while we can't, are willing to lead or co-lead, we also think about just who would be the best investor to lead the round. Maybe they have more expertise in the industry. So we're also willing to just like meaningfully participate in rounds and help fill them out. We really just want to think each round, what's kind of the best for the company while also maintaining our strategy as well. No, I think that makes that's really actually interesting. I don't think I've dived into that particular topic with any guests beforehand. So we're we're covering new ground here on this <laughs> on this podcast today. Love it. Oh, good. Um, you mentioned you know 10x returns, and I know an area of focus for you and a particular sector that is definitely seeing startups hit those astronomical return rates are consumer marketplaces. Mm-hmm. Um, curious as to what drove your interest over the years in consumer marketplaces and, you know, what maybe past examples of them, you know, fascinate you the most. Yeah. Consumer marketplaces just have the ability to have massive network effects. So the value of the product or the platform itself is just increasing kind of exponentially with the number of users. And that's just like a very strong ability to have almost like virality or, not have to constantly rely on paid acquisition and also just gets people super sticky and um, loyal to the platform. So I think that's something that's kind of like a big piece about it. I think that the ones that are probably the most interesting just have massive markets. So if you think about travel or a lot of these marketplaces are were like entering new markets. So obviously the market was huge and at the time sometimes super fragmented. So travel, it's a massive market. So Airbnb is able to just go in there and just get grow to a meaningful meaningful size very quickly. So I think huge network effects in marketplaces, potential for just like massive market size, strong loyalty, lots of frequency in how people are using them, just like great retention. People are kind of like build a habit towards using using a marketplace. So using DoorDash or Uber or Airbnb kind of to name some of the biggest ones. And then they're also kind of like growing the market too. So Uber Uber's created a market in ride sharing that was so much bigger than just the cab industry. So yeah, I just think that marketplaces have just like massive, massive market size potential and are super sticky with consumers. I'm curious when you come across something like consumer marketplaces, it's an area of interest for you for sure. Is this something where do you develop sort of mental models or investment thesis that you try and then go source startups for, or you try to find startups that are in consumer marketplaces, or do you try and be more opportunistic with your investments and are not as targeted in your approach? Like, how do you think about, you know, Mm -hmm. what interests you and what you actually invest in or look to invest in? Yeah, I think that we're actually trying to be a little bit more proactive about thinking about, okay, these industries for marketplaces really interest us and we think they're growing, so we should go after them. I think right now, given kind of bandwidth, we're a little bit more opportunistic, to be totally honest. I think like, as I think about it, some that really interest me are healthcare and future of work. So right now, so those are the ones I am thinking about a little bit more. I think that they're growing massively and they're, there's just a ton of potential for them. So I see a lot, you know, particularly post COVID, but really, really before it in healthcare marketplaces and future of work. So you'll see like nurses 
on demand or at-home caregivers and just specialized healthcare. So that's a place that I'm particularly interested in. Definitely seeking it out a little bit more. I'd say like we're slightly more opportunistic right now. And I feel like is Honor a good example, you know, of that in-home care, that's type of marketplace that that you think is uh, probably something that you're trying to find a sort of similar business model, maybe in an adjacent kind of consumer healthcare market? Um, Yeah, absolutely. I think like right now there's actually been a lot for like more even like specialized and niche like at-home care um, markets. And we've also actually like seen a lot that kind of like marry that with future of work. So some things that'll have nurses on demand or ride sharing to hospitals for elderly. Yeah. A lot of just like specialized, slightly more niche, but also like massive markets. You know, it can be a niche market that is big enough to be super successful, particularly in healthcare, which is such a big, big industry. I think it's hard to remember pre-COVID. I think future of work now, I think a lot of people just think of, you know, work from home enablement technologies or something related to work from home. It's hard to remember what was sort of the buzz about future of work before coronavirus. I know. I know. It actually is like, it is hard to remember a little bit. I think thing that has definitely come up more post COVID, but maybe was a growing trend was just almost like flexibility of work. So you'll see one in Chicago that's really big is called the mom project. I've also chatted with companies kind of in a similar vein to that, but just marketplaces for people who, the mom project is a good example, just because like, I probably have these numbers wrong, but I don't know if it was 2 million. I hope that's not just like horribly inaccurate, but women left the workforce. Some very astronomical number of moms left the workforce during COVID and people are slowly getting back in, or maybe they don't want to go back in full time and are looking for more part-time work or just flexible work in general. So I think like that's actually like flexible, flexible work and flexible work for working parents. I think that COVID kind of brought to light a lot of issues that were already present And so that's kind of great in a way that it's like, you know, working parents were struggling before COVID, this kind of shed light on it. And so I'm seeing a lot of, a lot of things in in future of work in that sense, where, where companies are trying to tackle that and create a working environment that's like conducive to also having a family. I think that's fascinating too. It almost feels like in this instance, it's really cultural shifts um, Mm -hmm. coming out of the pandemic that have driven sort of the demand and the desire for these types of consumer marketplaces. Whereas in the past, it almost felt like technological shifts, you know, the advent Mm -hmm. of the iPhone, you know, driving Uber and driving DoorDash. And, you know, it's a curious kind of difference, I think, but it's just the moment in time we're living in right now. I think it's really fascinating. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. (laughs) I like that. I also think too, it's it's fun. It's funny kind of being a millennial and we sort of still remember the advent of a lot of these consumer marketplaces. You know, I, mm-hmm. rem- I remember the first time I ordered an Uber, the first time I got Seamless, which was a terrible thing for my bank account for the rest of the, <laughs> you know, probably for eternity that I, I could order food on my phone. But no, I think it's an, inter- it's an interesting position to be in when when you do remember and you were young enough and you were sort of technologically savvy enough mm-hmm. to understand, I think you probably were in college at the time, but to really understand the the impact right away that something like, you know, an Uber, a, a consumer marketplace could have. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I remember then all of a sudden getting so hooked on Uber, I commuted daily just by Uber. <laughs> I used to ride my bike, so. Yep. Sh- shamelessly did the same in New York, uh, <laughs> even though I was really- <laughs> 
<laughs> the same. Um, but I, I, you mentioned the mom project and we've touched on Chicago a few times, but I, I'd love to just hear kind of your sort of prognosis or your view of the Chicago startup community and, uh, you know, how it's grown since, since you've sort of been focusing on venture capital here in Chicago and kind of your overall view. Yeah, I think Chicago is a very strong startup community. I mean, you know, slightly biased. I think having some more like big winners and big exits can only continue to drive up like almost like international recognition of the city. I think even like Cameo being such a massively growing marketplace in Chicago is like helping to drive interest and buzz in the city. And I think having those and like having more exits will be continue to be helpful. I think those are actually really important. I think we're still lacking a little bit in super early stage capital and like risk-taking angels. And I think that sometimes like the very, very early stage can be the most difficult to come by. So that's a piece I think that like we could use even more of. And I think actually you get more angels from having more tech and and big exits because <laughs> you have more people with more money who are interested in um, startups. So I think that's like a cycle of what really helps you, you know, like on the coast, they have had a lot, a lot of exits and you suddenly have all these angels who are super passionate about startups. So I think that as that continues to grow, that's going to continue to be pushing up the status of Chicago. We obviously have like great universities, incredible tech talent, slightly like lower cost of living as compared to New York and Boston and San Francisco, which I think is really helpful and why people want to move, want to move to the Midwest generally. And then reasonable valuations. Companies are more likely to be profitable. We have like great outcomes. So I think people are are starting to see the benefits of investing in the Midwest and Chicago as one of the epicenters of the Midwest. So yeah, I think like it's it continues to grow, and I think over the next ten years, we're just going to continue to see it thrive. So I'm and bullish. You mentioned, on it. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> you mentioned food tech. Any other categories within consumer that you think Chicago or the Midwest in general has sort of become a hub for? I think it's pretty fair to say that Chicago, with talk getting bought, you know, Tavala, kind of the success it's had, Factor. I think there's a lot of sort of ample evidence to you know, support. Chicago being a food tech hub, but just curious, mm-hmm. any other sort of consumer products or food and beverage areas that you think the Midwest or Chicago are, you know, really leading the forefront in? Yeah. I mean, food tech, definitely in ag tech, we have such large like corporates in the Midwest, like that are able to buy them or make initial investments or just, or be customers. So like with Kraft Heinz and Conagra, I think alcohol is actually like a pretty big one, like with Miller Coors. And so, yeah, you see a lot of new alcohol brands, sometimes like better few alcohol brands growing up. Ag tech is obviously a big thing in the Midwest. I've been seeing healthcare is huge. I've been seeing a lot more femtech. So healthcare, that's a little bit more focused around women. It might be maternity or kind of postnatal care, postmenopause care. I've been seeing just like kind of a large growth in the femtech sector in the Midwest. Um, I think that just is like related to the strength of kind of healthcare in the Midwest. And this is realizing like we haven't created a ton of companies and to address women's health. You know, we obviously have like a very strong corporate sector and banks and insurance. And so we do have a very strong enterprise software industry here. So 
companies and startups that serve that, this is like a great place to be and grow. And that's why it's so successful here. So I think that's definitely a big piece as well. And, you know, the only thing you didn't mention was we have Portillo's here and Portillo's is starting (laughs) to make investments. So I don't no know. way! I actually I think, didn't know that. Uh, yeah, so yeah, they funny. invested. Yeah, they invested in like an early stage food delivery company. And uh, yeah, I've reached out twice to Portillo's via Twitter, via their website, trying to get somebody from there on the podcast. But I haven't had any success, which is weird because I'm like definitely a power user <laughs> of Portillo's app. That so is. So I don't know funny. what I have to do, but so that's actually really funny because the Portillo's family actually grew up behind me, behind my house. So I, All right. I need to figure out a way. They're from the Western suburbs. I should I should connect with them. And if I get in touch with them, I'll connect you. <laughs> that would, that you would forever be the greatest guest of Chicago Capital. We, you'd have a shrine in our, in our studio, basically, at that point. Um, on the topic of Pertillo's, this has been amazing. I appreciate you so much, you coming on. But I always love to ask, favorite Chicago restaurants, that you love to frequent, especially coming out of coronavirus. We'll be back in person. So what, what do you have for us? Yeah. So my absolute favorite is a, is a um, restaurant called Spockanopoly. Have you been there? I have not. Okay. It's a pizza restaurant in Ravenswood. It's just unbelievable. Spockanopoly. It's just like such a magical environment, super small, um, you know, lights outside. It's just like the best pizza, the best burrata. Check it out. So good. I also, you know, I guess I'm thinking of Italian right now, but I, I love Monteverde is, is like unbelievable. Um, as I'm going through my head in the West Loop, you know, I actually grew up like, I don't know, this is not like a hot new restaurant, but I always went to RL and I loved sitting by the fireplace when it was cold and snowy. And I think that's like a super magical place to, to go in the winter. But yeah, I'd say like my number one, Spockanopoly, definitely check it out. <laughs> I couldn't be in more agreement with you. RL during the winter time, getting a burger, sitting by the fire. It's just a yeah, it's, it's delightful. the best. It's the best. It's the best. <laughs> well, Julia, thank you so much for coming on Chicago Capital. We really appreciate it. And uh, you know, if people want to follow you and follow Sindolphin, where can they go? So I like am going to start going live sort of more on Twitter now that we are like more publicly facing now that we've raised our second fund. So I don't have anything to say right now. So for us, if you're looking to follow Sindolphin Capital on Twitter, you can do at Sindolphin Cap and follow us there. If you want to follow Jonathan, our managing partner, he's at John, J-O-N-R Ellis on Twitter. And then also we host two kind of like a biannual conference called Midwest Tech Connect that basically connects Midwest-based startups with investors across the country. And that you can follow us at Midwest dot, which is D-O-T tech. And you'll be able to find out when our next conference is coming up. Yeah, it's so impressive what you guys have been able to do with that. I can personally say I know a lot of people who just love that event. So kudos to everybody at Sindolphin. Julia, thank you so much for coming on Chicago Capital. We can't wait to do this again. Thanks so much. If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through Series A stage, 
check out Manifold Group. We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio, and advisory firm. Learn more about Manifold at www.manifold.group. And please tune in for the next Chicago Capital episode.